We are going to be looking at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27 and 2 and verse 23 primarily. And our study uh, through the first 11 chapters of Genesis brings us to a topic that we mentioned only in passing a few weeks ago when we were dealing with what it means that human beings are created in the image of God. And I think we're at a point now in our series we can't really take another step without dealing with this topic uh, with the attention that it really deserves uh, here. And that is the topic of maleness and femaleness. Genesis 1:27. so God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him male and female. He created them. Now, when we use Genesis 1 and 2 as our textbook for understanding what it means that we are, as human beings, either male or female, we're in good company because Jesus Christ Himself, in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 4, referred to this very passage when addressing the topic of marriage. And He said to people who were questioning Him, have you not read that from the beginning God made them male and female? So nothing has changed since this first account of human beings created in the image of God, male and female. Now, I hardly need to convince you of how relevant of a topic this is this morning. Just by way of introduction, I just want to say five things about this topic, okay, before we get into it. And the first is that right out of the gate, it's a controversial topic. And by that, I mean that people are arguing about what it means that humans are male and female and whether our maleness or femaleness that has anything to do with our gender identity. And this controversy has spilled over into areas that we really don't want this to be a controversy in. Sports and, and politics and libraries and pronouns. It's very controversial. But it's not just that it's controversial, it's a personal topic. So there's some controversial things that are kind of out there. We can debate about how the age of the earth, for example, or what, what are the meanings of the, the little toes on the golden statue in the book of Daniel? I mean, we, there's things that are somewhat impersonal out there, but this is not one of them. This is a highly personal topic. It relates to you as a person, and no one can be neutral to it. I can't be neutral to this topic. You can't be neutral to this topic, no matter who you are, because, and no one denies this, every human being is either male or female. So this is something that relates to you as a person. It's, it's controversial. It's personal. But it's also, it's very sensitive and it relates to things that could make you angry or tearful, uncomfortable. And now you're probably thinking, Pastor Jonathan, what are you getting yourself into now? Have you just argued yourself out of a sermon? <laughs> but fourth, this is an inescapable topic. We can't escape dealing with this. We can't, we can't just simply avoid it. I, I could, you can almost say about this topic what the psalmist says in Psalm 139 about the presence of God. Whither shall I go from this topic? Or where shall I flee from the presence of these debates? If I ascend to the library, it is there. If I descend to the daily news cycle, behold, it is there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the children's section of our bookstore, even there I am confronted with this topic. Now, simply because this is, topic is so prevalent in our culture, and so inescapable in our culture does not automatically bind us to deal with it in a sermon like this. But the thing that ultimately makes this topic inescapable for us is that the Bible speaks to it. This is in the Word of God. And the same 
the same obligation that bound the prophets of old binds Christians of this present day. The Lord has spoken. We cannot be silent. We look upon the Word of God and accept it as what God has taught us and wants us to understand and believe and proclaim. But the final thing I want to say about this topic is that it can be an encouraging topic. It can be an encouraging topic. Um, I think the debates about it, the controversy about it, the, the personal nature of it, the sensitive nature of it can make us approach this topic with a sense of foreboding or or uh, gloom, or how, how can this be encouraging at all? But the thing I want us to understand is that this, this topic, that of our maleness and femaleness, like any topic in the Bible, if it's, if it's given in the Bible, if it's originally something that God has created as good, our hearts always make a mess of it. But if that's the case, grace always wins. God's God's grace always has the power to overcome what we in our sinfulness have twisted and perverted and misunderstood so that, as Paul writes in Romans 11, 36, from him and through him and for him are all things. And, And so is the case with this topic. From God is our maleness and femaleness. And through God it can be restored so that it can be to the glory of God. And so we could approach this topic as something that can encourage us like a, a glass of cold water on a hot day or a, or a shaft of sunlight on a dark path. There is something here to help and encourage us in our walk with the Lord. And so we want to approach the topic in this way. And what do we want to do here? First, well, as we approach it, we want to approach this topic as learners, as those who simply come to the Word of God and say and ask, what has God said about this? What is God's mind on this topic of our maleness or femaleness? And I think, our, I think we could uh, assume that our feet are firmly planted in our culture, at least uh, somewhat of an understanding of what's going on in our culture. You understand what's going, going, what is going on in your life, so our, our feet are planted in 2023. But I'd also invite us to plant another foot in the Bible so that we can compare the two and see how what our minds and hearts tell us and tend to tell us and what our culture tells us, how that compares to what the Bible is telling us. And so what I want to show us is that when we take an honest look at what the Bible says about this topic of our maleness and femaleness, what we're going to see from these verses here in the Bible, we're going to see that it is a bestowal, we're going to see that it is beautiful, and we're also going to see that it's balanced. All right, so we're going to walk through it this way. We're going to look at the Bible's presentation of maleness and femaleness as a bestowal as beauty and as balance, all right? Those are my three main uh, divisions here. First of all, uh, we look at the Bible's presentation of maleness and femaleness, and we see that it is a bestowal. By by bestowal, I mean it's a gift. It's something that God has bestowed, something that God has given. And we see this uh, not only in Genesis 1.27, the verse that we just read, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. But we also see it confirmed in the saying of Jesus that I also quoted, that is Matthew 19, 4. It's very clear, clear in that passage and all throughout the Bible that maleness or femaleness is something that God has given. It's something that is uh, from God. Now, I quickly want to say, first of all, what I don't mean by saying that maleness and femaleness is a divine bestowal. 
I, I think that there is a tendency for us to think that we can take this verse, male and female, and what Jesus said about it in Matthew 19, and just take it like a loose duffel bag and stuff into that whatever our cultural concepts say about maleness and femaleness. So it would be easy for me to take this text and say God created man male and female and then start, and then in your mind it's, you, you have some cultural stereotypes of masculinity and femininity from a particular decade, uh, say the 1950s or 60s or 70s, and, and maybe start movie characters or uh, movie stars show up in your mind when you think about true masculinity or true femininity. We have to, I want to be very careful to, to clarify what this is simply saying is that maleness and femaleness, that is human, the human race as consisting of individuals either, either male or female is itself a divine gift, not the many cultural layers that we put upon this. And just to help you uh, understand this a little bit more, uh, more carefully, God's gift of maleness and femaleness is similar to His gift uh, to humans that we desire to cultivate things. God has created us in His image, and He said, have dominion. And so we can see all throughout history as human beings, they come into, they, they encounter a, a, a field and they want to make it into a garden, or they uh, encounter a pile of rocks and they want to build a, a home out of it. So there is this impulse to create, to invent, to innovate, and that is a God-given impulse. Now, in Genesis chapter 4, we read of some things that humans did with that God-given impulse. We read that some human beings built tents and became farmers. Other human beings made musical instruments, and still other human beings forged iron and bronze. We can't say, well, forging iron and bronze isn't as good as making tents, or, or making tents isn't as uh, good as making musical instruments. No, those are all manifestations. They're cultural manifestations of a good bestowal of God. That is our inclination to cultivate, to bring order out of chaos. And so, in different cultures, there are different ways in which maleness and femaleness has been shown. And this is not saying that any of these cultural, that all of these cultural manifestations in and of themselves are good, but simply this, maleness and femaleness is a gift from God. The question I want to ask then is, what does this mean positively? It means that the various aspects of maleness and femaleness are a gift of God. The equality of it is a gift of God. So if we look at verse 27, we see that both male and female bear God's image. It's not just that males bear God's image and then females bear the image of males or that they're somehow less than human. No, male and female created he them in his image. We see this furthermore in uh, Adam's uh, poem, his exaltation. I mean, he's just exploding with joy when he sees uh, Eve for the first time. And he says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh out of, fle of my flesh. He did not say, oh no, now I have someone that threatens me here. I was doing just fine in the Garden of Eden. Here comes someone, someone else is coming along to be my competition. No, he didn't say that. He celebrated it. The equality is a gift from God. Neither did he say, oh, now I have a slave to do my work for me. God has given me a big job, a responsibility here to take care of this garden. Now I have someone I could boss around and tell, tell them what to do. No, that's not what Adam said. Now he, no, neither did he say, and this is, this is quite important for us to understand, especially given the context, Adam didn't say, now I have someone to bear my children. He didn't even say that. He said, now I have a companion. 
Now I have someone who bears my essential nature, yet is different than I am. Now I have someone whose differences complete what lacks in me. It was not good, as we talked about three weeks ago, that man be alone. And now there is not aloneness. There is not, it is not that there is uh, complete sameness, but equality. There are differences that complement one another. So the equality is good. But this also leads us into the fact that I already get it, started getting to the differences are a gift. From, the, the equality is a gift from God. The differences are a gift from God. There are differences in order. Adam was created first and then Eve, which means that when God made Eve, well, God made Adam out of the dust of the ground, and God makes Eve out of Adam, which means, as one commentator has put it, Eve is doubly refined. Adam was, came from the earth, Eve comes from Adam, and Eve is doubly refined. The differences of order are good, are a gift from God. But this also meant that Adam bore a special responsibility that Eve did not bear. It also implies a difference in responsibilities, and those differences in responsibilities are a gift from God. This also implies a difference of ability, and the differences of ability are a gift from God. God made, in many cases, women with the women having the capacity to bear children, and that capacity is a gift of God. And for men to father children, in that capacity, is a gift of God. And that means that the fact of maleness and femaleness is a gift of God. Now, what does this mean for us then? Have I said anything that you most of you don't already know and agree with? Well, this means that maleness and femaleness, as with everything else that God has created to this point, is very good. Now, what do you do when someone gives you something that's very good? Those of you who are parents, what do you teach your children to say? Thank you. The response to something that is good when we know the giver is good is a response of gratitude. Now, what happens when a good giver gives people a gift, and the gifts are not the same. They're different somehow. Have you ever noticed this at Christmas time? You open their presents, and you can look at your gift, and you're so, you're so excited and thankful, and then you look at the one who gave it, and you say, thank you, and then you look at what someone else got, and you start comparing it to what you got. And, and it's not necessarily that the one is more valuable than the other, but you're just wondering, is it better somehow, or is it worse? See, what happens because of our inclination to doubt the goodness of the giver is that we compare with what God has given us with what God has given other people to see whether it can be a way in which for us to assert our superiority or a way for us to feel inferior. This is what we tend to do. This is the opposite of gratitude. The opposite of gratitude is to doubt the goodness of the giver. But this tendency, this bent of our heart, to be ungrateful and therefore to use the differences that we have of maleness and femaleness as either an opportunity to gloat, to make fun of, to subjugate, to make ourselves superior or otherwise inferior. It is so deeply ingrained in the human heart that we, don't, we, we not only automatically feel it within ourselves, this impulse to be ungrateful has been enshrined in, in ancient mythologies. I'm going to give you an example of one so you can see how striking this is. 300 years before the time of Christ, uh, one of the great Western philosophers, Plato, in one of his dialogues, tells, uh, one of his characters tells a, 
a myth about how maleness and femaleness came about. Now, it's not clear whether this, the retelling of this myth was just meant to be hilarious. It actually, it, there's, there's some humorous elements to it. Or whether this really reflected something that people actually believe. What is clear is that it kind of enshrines an innate suspicion about why human beings are male and female. And according to this myth, human beings, most of human beings, were originally neither male nor female, but a combination of the two. In fact, humans had two heads, four arms, and four legs. And, they can, and, and because they were shaped this way, they could move around really fast, and they were really powerful, and, most, and worst of all, they were really noisy. And the gods, Zeus particularly, was annoyed and felt threatened by these humans that were neither male nor female, but a combination of the two, who had four arms, four legs, two heads, and were running all over the place, doing all kinds of crazy things. He got so fed up with it that he, he took some bolts of lightning and threw it at the human beings and split them down the middle. And then Apollo comes along and kind of heals them up and fixes them, and now they just have one head, two arms, two legs, and are male or female. Now you're thinking, that just sounds crazy, right? But behind that myth is a suspicion that our maleness and femaleness is not a result of a good gift, but as a divine punishment. That the difference between the sexes is not a result of something good, but it results in something bad. See, this is so, it's so deeply ingrained in our hearts that it is, it's worked our way into ancient mythologies. It presents maleness and femaleness rather than a divine bestowal. It sees, us, it sees it as a divine curse. But this is what we tend to do. But the main thing that we see when we look at the Bible's presentation, humans were created in the image of God, male and female. We see this is not a curse. This is not something bad. The differences are not meant to cause men and women to oppose one another or to feel superior or inferior, but this is something to celebrate as a gift from God. God gives this to us for our flourishing and for our good. When God intends us, to, when we see maleness and femaleness, to see this as an indication of God's blessing and God's goodness because it is a divine bestowal. That's what we see when we look at the text of Scripture. And it is when we see maleness and femaleness as a bestowal from God that we will be able to better recognize its beauty. And that takes us to the second uh, point here. When we look at the way the Bible presents maleness and femaleness, we see it as a divine bestowal. And by that, I mean it's something God's given. But then that also allows us to see it as beautiful. And by beautiful, I'm not talking merely about physical beauty, although in God's goodness, there is a physical beauty to maleness and femaleness. What I'm talking about is the beauty of the fact of maleness and femaleness, and that is that it fits within God's purposes. The, the, the meaning of beauty here in this context is an idea of fittingness, just like uh, some of the notes that we sang uh, in, the, in the song. They, they, they were beautiful because they fit within the song. They fit within the chord progression. They resolved and, and had the proper dissonance. There's a, a beauty in that because it was part of the overall structure. It's the beauty that I'm talking about is, is like also the beauty of architecture or a beauty of a well-crafted novel. Each part serves the purpose. Each part answers to the purpose for which it was given. And so what I mean by beauty here is this, that maleness and femaleness answers to God's good purposes for creating the universe and for creating human beings. And I'll give you three of these. 
maleness and femaleness answers to God's purpose that human beings bear God's image. So the verse 27, if you look back at your Bible that I quoted, that, that male and female, he created them, is in the context of God created human, creating humans in his image. Male and female. Not just females in his image, not just males in his image, but male and female in his image, which means this. Maleness alone is insufficient to properly image God. Femaleness alone is insufficient to properly image God. Although each human being is properly an image bearer, we need each other. This explains why throughout the Bible, although God is consistently referred to as by He, Him, and called Father, there are attributes that belong exclusively to females that help us understand better who God is. I'll give you some examples. Deuteronomy 32, 18 refers to the God who gave you birth. I'm not saying that God is female. I'm just saying that what, God, what Scripture does is uses attributes that are exclusively female to, to help us understand more, in a richer sense who God is. Why? Because it is true that both male and female bear God's image. Another example is this, Isaiah 66, 13. As a mother comforts her child, so I, God is speaking, will comfort you. Matthew 23, 37, Jesus is speaking. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I have gathered, desired to gather your children together like a hen gathers her brood under her wings. Isaiah 49, 15 says, Can a mother forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. You see how various aspects of, of, of things unique to femaleness God draws upon to help us understand the richness of His care and compassion for us. And you might say, oh, so you're saying all the tender, motherly, nurturing, protective, kind qualities are associated with God, and maybe all the stern, uh, um, stern qualities are associated with maleness. Well, listen to this. Like a mother bear robbed of her cubs, God is speaking, I will attack them and rip them open. Referring to God's fierce protection of his people against his enemies. So you see what's going on here. It is true that the, and I, this is a, I quote, this is Herman Bovink, who is a, a, a Dutch theologian of the 19th century. The uniqueness and richness of feminine qualities, no less than those of the masculine capacities, find their origin an example in God. So maleness and females, my, my point here is that we, we see the beauty of maleness and femaleness in that it answers to God's purpose that human beings bear His image, both male and female. But it also answers to God's purpose that humans fill the earth. So when we were, started out this series, we were talking about how God created the world. And we, uh, we mentioned that this world was marked by, from Genesis 1 uh, two, it says the earth was w- without form and void. The earth was wild and waste. Uh, the earth had this, uh, this chaotic element to it until God brought order. And we see this in the, uh, the, the shape of the creation days. God, he first of all makes a canvas, as it were, and then paints on that canvas. And he makes another canvas, and he paints that canvas. He's, he's creating spaces, and he's filling those spaces. And when it comes to the world as, God, as a canvas for human beings, God says, I want the world to be full of people. 
God wants there to be many human beings. And so he created male and female with a capacity for reproducing. Why? Because maleness and femaleness is beautiful and that it answers to God's purpose that the earth be full of human beings. And the third way in which we see the beauty of maleness and femaleness in answering to God's purpose is that it answers to God's purpose that humans enjoy fellowship with God in community. In other words, it's not, that, it's not just that we enjoy fellowship with God. It's like just me and God, and I'm enjoying my relationship with God over here, and you're enjoying your relationship with God over here, and this person enjoying their relationship with God over here. No, God desires for human beings to enjoy their relationship with Him together. And in the togetherness enriches our enjoyment of God. This is why eating a meal together is so much more enjoyable than eating a meal all by yourself in your bedroom. Why? Because you have someone else who's across the table from you and they're going, mmm, aren't these potatoes so good? Oh, yeah, I didn't notice that. Try, try mixing it with this or whatever. And, and what's going on here is the communal aspect of enjoying something enriches your enjoyment of it. Or, for example, watching a movie together. I watch a movie with my wife, and afterwards, if it was a good movie, we'd talk about it, and I'll say, oh, I like this part about it. Did you notice this character development? And my wife would say, no, but did you notice this? What is happening? Because we come at it with different perspectives, our enjoyment of it is enriched. Now, if someone were to watch a movie with someone else and they say, did you notice that? Yeah, I noticed that. Well, did you notice this other part? Yeah, I noticed that too. Well, is there anything that you noticed that I didn't know? It was either a boring movie or you're boring people. <laughs> but if it's, if, it's a, if it's a good movie, if it's, if it's textured and detailed and, and is, is well-written and, and you're thinking about it creatively, then your enjoyment of that beautiful thing is not depleted but enriched by the number of people enjoying it and interacting with each other about it. Now think about this. If God is the supremely beautiful being, does it not make sense that we need other people to stand at different angles and say, oh, did you see this about God? No, I didn't. But did you see this about God? No, I didn't. What a great God he must be. Men and women need each other to enjoy God more fully. Why? Because God intends to be glorified by a race of human beings who are as individuals, either male or female. You see how God's good purposes, that human beings bear his image, that human beings be fruitful and multiply, that human beings enjoy Him in community. Those good purposes of God are answered by maleness and femaleness. It's beautiful. So we see when we look at the Bible's presentation of maleness and femaleness, we see it as a divine bestowal. We see it as beauty. And finally, we see it as balanced. We see it as balanced. And here, I, I've primarily just looked at, at this presentation of maleness and femaleness as it stands, but now as we begin looking at how this compares with what our hearts tend to do with maleness and femaleness, we see that in contrast to that, the Bible is very balanced. Or another way to put it is this, whenever we veer away from the Bible's presentation of maleness and femaleness, whenever we veer away from it because of our tendency to doubt God's goodness, we will inevitably be imbalanced. We will inevitably go, go in a direction that is self-destructive. I want to contrast the Bible's balanced presentation of this with several imbalances in our culture. And let me be very careful to say this. My friends, our culture is just a massive projection of what we find in our hearts. 
So I'm not just, I'm not just preaching at people that we think out there. I'm preaching to us in here, okay? It's easy for us to just have a kind of condescending attitude. We think, well, those aren't my problems. They are our problems. We see these imbalances, first of all, the imbalance of making maleness and femaleness less than what it is. That's an imbalance. It's an imbalance of saying, well, it really doesn't matter whether someone is biologically a male or female. What really matters is how you feel. That imbalance says things like, your body is not as real as your thoughts. Your biological sex is not as important as your psychological state. And this approach typically takes a, a cultural stereotype masculinity, right or wrong, and kind of sneers at it. Or a cultural stereotype of femininity, right or wrong, and kind of sneers at it. Now, what seem, what, to us, because, because this is so new relatively in our culture, it feels like it's a new thing. It feels like it's a new imbalance. I think the newness of it can make, it feel, make us feel like, whoa, wh- what do we even do with this? How do we even think about this? I remember signing up for a social media account that I had. I, th- I was creating a new account, and I had created one earlier, and I was creating another one several years later. It, it, this is probably about six years ago. When I signed up for this social media account, I, I did, there was an option that says choose your gender. And I clicked the drop-down box, and I was, I was presented with a list of over 50 options. And I remember I, I looked this up just this past week, how many options were present from that social media company when it was first launched. There were just two. And in 2014, they went from two to over 50 now, because of the, the, how rapidly this, change, this can change, we can think, well, this is an entirely new thing. We could, it could leave us bewildered. But this, this idea that my feelings are more important than my body, my mind is more important than matter, this is a really, really, really ancient imbalance that has been talked about by philosophers for, for thousands of years. It's the, it's the question of mind or matter, body or mind. And, and the, the answer that many people in our culture is saying, it's, it's mind that matters. It's your feelings that matter more than, more than your body, as if the two are in conflict. See, the Bible doesn't put mind and matter in conflict. The Bible doesn't put your, your biological maleness or femaleness in conflict as if these two can't be reconciled. Both are a gift from God. God gave you your mind and your body. It's an imbalance that makes a person's body the prison of their feelings. And they feel like they cannot be satisfied or fulfilled or have any kind of significance until somehow either their feelings match their body or their body matches their feelings. And this is, this, is a, this is an extreme imbalance. The biblical view of things sees both mind and body as gifts from God. But there's another imbalance. If one imbalance makes maleness and femaleness less than what it is, another imbalance makes fem- maleness and femaleness more than what it is. And this approach says what matters most about you is your maleness or femaleness. And this approach typically takes a, a cult, again, we're talking about cultural stereotypes. This approach t- uh, takes a cultural stereotype of masculinity and says unless you match up to this masculinity, you're really not much of a man. Or unless you match up to this stereotype of femininity, you're really not much of a woman. You see what it's doing? It's making way more of maleness and femaleness. It's not seeing it as a gift anymore. It's seeing, of, it's seeing it as something that's up for grabs. 
It's seeing, some, it's seeing it as instead of a good gift from God for God's purposes, it's seeing it as something that I could grab for my purposes. See, see, both of these imbalances stem from the same problem. That's failing to see God as the good giver of maleness or femaleness. And the Bible presents the, the picture that tells us this. Your maleness matters not because you've managed to live up to some cultural ideal of masculinity, but because maleness is a gift of God. And your femaleness matters not because you live up to some cultural ideal of femininity, but because your femaleness is a gift from God. You see, this is the balance that comes when we see everything as God's good gift. Another way of, of stating this heresy or this imbalance is, is this idea that by my masculinity I am saved. But the Bible says, by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of masculinity, lest any man should boast. And not in femininity, lest any woman should boast. It is God's grace that saves us. It is only by God's grace that we find security and significance and satisfaction. This is not to cast maleness or femaleness to the ground, but is rather to place it in its proper perspective. If there is an imbalance of making maleness or femaleness less than what it is or more than what it is, there's another imbalance and that is making maleness or femaleness all about one thing. Every culture tends to do this. And again, why does every culture tend to do this? Because there's a bent, there's a bent in our heart, everyone's heart, my heart, your heart to do this. The tendency can be to make maleness or femaleness all about the ability to reproduce or sex or all about power. I was just doing a little look at one of some of the ancient philosophers say about maleness and femaleness. And I, I referenced Plato recently, um, I, just a few moments ago, Aristotle, who is considered to be a massive, uh, massively, he is massively influential in, in Western philosophy, uh, said that women are inferior to men and are meant to be ruled. That was his perspective. It did not come from the Bible. It is the tendency of a human heart to use a power unique to oneself as a way of boasting, vaunting oneself over another. And there are capacities that are unique to men. We don't deny that. And there are capacities unique to women, and we don't deny that. But these are capacities are not given so that, other, so that we can despise others or boast over others. These are given so that we can serve others. And yet the tendency of our culture and the tendency of our own hearts is to make maleness and femaleness all about one thing, whether it's sex, family, or power. This takes us back to what we said at the beginning, and that is when Paul says in Romans 11.36, for from him and through him and to him are all things, that includes the fact that human beings are male or female. I think one of the most important statements about this topic comes from Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. You don't need to turn there, but it might be helpful to jot it down. I'll read it to you. Paul is writing, and he says, In Christ Jesus, you are all sons and daughters, by implication, of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Now, here's the statement that's very striking, and this was totally countercultural in Paul's days. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
Now, to be clear, Paul is not saying that there is no such thing as male and female, just as he is not saying that there were no, there were no such things as slave people, enslaved persons, or free persons, or Jews, or Gentiles. That's not what he was saying. What he was saying is that because of Christ, these differences no longer become a source of discontentment or despising others. Because of Christ, these differences become way, ways in which we can, through love, serve one another. Why? Because Christ transforms all these things. He turns the world's values upside down. And the solution for all of us, then, is Christ. And I don't say that just to wrap this controversial discussion up with a neat little bow. That's not why I say it, uh, the, the solution is Christ. I say the solution is Christ because the solution is Christ. It is true. I cannot point you as a solution to your feelings because your feelings will deceive you. Neither can I point you to, alone to your biological reality because we find this to be a vexing source for ourselves too. I cannot point you to your masculinity, to your femininity for salvation. There's only, just as, as, us, I, just as I can't point you to your race or to your money uh, for your salvation, we can only look to Christ for significance and security and satisfaction. If you, and I'll just draw out in closing three points of application here. If you are troubled by our culture's changing views on gender and sexuality, look to Christ. Because those of us who believe strongly about this, and rightly so, are in danger of shouting truth so loud people don't hear love. Christ did not say, go into all the world and preach that men should be men and women should be women, although they should. No one got to, because no one got to heaven by being a man or being a woman. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Put Christ out in front. His love, his life, his triumph over sin and death and see what kind of Christ-like masculinity and femininity will follow in that train. You put Christ out first. You preach Christ. It, It could be that there are issues of masculinity and femininity and maleness and femaleness that need to be clarified. There are issues that need to be clarified, but there's only one person that can save, and his name is Jesus Christ. Along those lines, just by way of illustration, I was uh, many years ago taking uh, on a mission trip to Papua New Guinea for two months, and there was a, uh, a little infant baby that was very, very sick and about to die. And the missionary there Uh, was a physician's assistant and he uh, knew how to help this baby and the people brought the the baby to the missionary saying this baby needs medicine this baby needs medicine and he looked at the baby and he said the first thing this baby needs is food this baby needs its mother's milk you know if it is true that our culture is is sick and there are things that are wrong with it it may need it may need some medicine but the first thing it needs is christ Second, if you are troubled by your own maleness or femaleness or confusion about it, you look to Christ too. If you are tempted to think that if you could only change your body to match your feelings, could such a change really give you what you're longing for? Or is what you really long for is something deeper than any bodily change could ever give you? someone to look at you and know you and say, I love you. But isn't that what Jesus has proved by dying on the cross? 
Isn't this what Jesus has done by coming to us and presenting himself to us and saying, I love you so much, I was willing to die and I rose again for you so that you can trust and obey and obey Christ, and when you do that, you'll see that God made no mistake in making you who you are. And third, if you have despised others in your heart or with your mouth, with your words, whether it's a woman despising men or for their maleness or a man despising women for their femaleness, or a boy despising a girl for being a girl, or a girl despising a boy for being a boy, if, the, if you have despised others in your heart, you need to look to Christ too. Is your self-image so fragile that it takes despising other people to feel good about yourself? See that what Christ offers not only rebukes your arrogance, but also satisfies what you're really looking for in any way. And that is significance that could be found not in your masculinity or femininity, but in being a man or woman that loves and honors Christ. So look to Christ. This is why we must see this topic that is in our culture and in our own hearts deeply sensitive deeply personal, highly controversial. We must see this as being like everything else, something that is from God, can be redeemed through God so that God can have all the glory.